Welcome to the Bible Feed Podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. This is the first of a two-part episode, which asks the question, can we rely on the text of the New Testament and its extraordinary claims about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? One way to approach that question is to explore the mysterious world of textual criticism. What is it? Is it a science or is it an art? Dan talks to Phil Evans over these two episodes to make it all clear, hopefully. My name's Dan Weatherall, and today I'm joined by Phil. Phil Evans. Hi, Phil. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me on. That's all right. I'm, I'm getting you on to talk about a a topic that can be very detailed and technical and and dry and dusty sometimes but but together we want to make this as as uh, accessible as fun as lively as possible but, but yeah so what, what what are we talking about today so we're talking about the the text of the new testament itself and how we can have assurance i think anyway um that it is reliable so a reliable uh, as in the, the New Testament that we read in our Bibles today, whichever version we're using, is is going to be an accurate reflection of what was originally written. That's what we're examining, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's not so much about the message itself and the teaching of the Bible. You know, they're, they're topics I know you cover in, in other other podcasts that you do. Um, this this is more about the words on the page. You know, how how can we know that when we're reading them, they are the words that were originally written so many years ago? Absolutely. Therefore, it's important, isn't it, if we want to place any value in any of the message of the Bible, then knowing that what we've got is actually what was originally there in the first place is kind of an important thing, isn't it? So, so yeah, I think I say this on a lot, lots of these uh, episodes I do that we, you know, we're the, we're the ordinary people. We're the, we're not the the experts, and this is one of those that's absolutely it shows that for sure. I don't know how many textual critics there are in the in the world, but textual criticism is the field, isn't it, that, that studies this? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a very specialised subject. There are, there are not, not many, not, not many of us can, can claim to be textual critics. Um, you know, it is a field that involves a, a lot of study and actually brings, brings to bear a whole number of different disciplines on the text of Scripture. You quite rightly say that we are not the experts, but um, the beauty of this this area, I think, like, like most, is that there, well, that there are a lot of very good resources out there because it, it's in the interests of, of the people who do work in this area to make it accessible mm-hmm. to, to folk like you and I and and your listeners. Because you know, if they just sort of sit in their ivory towers and churn out this stuff, you know, it, it's in their interest that it doesn't just sort of sit gathering yeah. dust, but they actually make it understandable to uh, to, to ordinary folk like you and I. So we're, yeah, we're leaning he- heavily on. On the information out there, yeah, and I think I, th- I think we're, we're, uh, there might be a chance just to talk about some of those resources at the end, perhaps, sure. or, or, or link to them in the uh, in the description. Yeah, that that'd be good. Okay, good. Let, let's let's start to, by sort of framing this topic then, because sometimes this is perceived as a bit of a problem or almost a challenge to Christianity or a challenge to the Bible, isn't it? You know, how can we be sure that the New Testament and, and today we're just talking about the New Testament? How can we be sure that what we've got in our Bibles does reflect what was originally written in, in the Greek language many, many years ago? Can you talk us through why it is sometimes a problem? Well, imagine today that you were to walk into a bookshop. Here in the UK, we have Waterstones, for example. You know, if you were to walk into a Waterstones bookshop and purchase a book, 
you could then go to another Waterstones branch, you know, in, in another city, you know, some hundreds of miles away, perhaps, and buy exactly the same book. And you could be absolutely certain, barring any sort of horrendous mistakes at the printers, that, that the words would be exactly the same, that both copies, if, if you examine them, would, would be identical. And we kind of take that for granted, you know, in our, in our modern Western world with you know, the invention of the printing press. And we, we, we just take it for granted that we've got printed copies that are exactly the same. Now, that, that, that is the issue because the Bible is an ancient book. The New Testament was written you know, some 2000 years ago. And the copies mm. were not printed, at least not until the 15th century when the printing press was invented. So the, the copies that we have are, for the most part, handwritten. And that presents an issue because you have a fairly, a fairly complicated and messy history of transmission. Yeah. Because whenever you hand a piece of text down from generation to generation in a handwritten format, you get mistakes that creep in, you know, whether intentional or, or, or otherwise. And we'll go on to talk about some of those. So that, that's the issue at the number of the problem here, that you've got handwritten copies that have been handed down over two millennia. Okay. And, and it's, yeah, it's a long time, isn't it? And I suppose we don't have any of the originals. We don't have the originals. No, I mean, they, they were, the originals would have been written on papyrus, which is sort of made, made out of, mm -hmm. you know, dry, dry reeds. The trouble with that kind of material is it, it doesn't last very long. Um, so the originals have almost certainly, you know, crumbled to dust now. Mm. And I, you know, I guess you can take another illustration here to think about this problem. When I was a kid at school, we used to play a game, um, it's probably not politically correct to describe it in this way now, but it was called Chinese Whispers. Yeah, or Telephone, I think. I think it's called called Telephone, perhaps, by some people, yeah. The, the idea is that, you know, you have a group of a group of friends and you pick a person to start and they choose, you know, just a simple message or a word or a phrase or anything that comes into their head. Um, and they whisper it to the person next to them and then that person whispers it to the person next to them and so on. And then when it gets all the way around the circle, the person in the last place you know says the message out loud and and typically the message has been corrupted along that along that path um some people have done it deliberately just to be silly but but in other cases it's it's a genuine misunderstanding they haven't heard it properly yeah you know and and, and that on on some small level illustrates the problem here that when you pass a message on in that way with kind of you know limited controls um, it does become corrupted. It's it's inevitable. That's it illustrates the problem really well. We've got not just a playground of of, of that game, but we've got a two thousand year history and different cultures and translations and yeah. copies and everything. So it can seem a bit hopeless sometimes. And, and you know, there's there's sort of prominent people that aren't there who've who've made a thing of that. I'm thinking Bart Ehrman, for example, name that many many listeners might know, um, who've sort of made a big deal of this transmission history and how that there's been lots of changes and and so on that is part of the problem that you, you have some fairly big names who make some fairly big and bold statements about this uh, and perhaps make them knowing that they are making them to an audience who might not know the ins and outs and some of the nuances behind mm. this stuff um so you, yeah you, you, you mentioned bart Ehrman there who interestingly is a new testament textual critic himself mm. which which adds an mm. interesting angle onto this he, he sort of goes to town on, on this a little bit in his book misquoting jesus um i have the quote here he he says you know and again he, this is in the section where he's sort of trying to frame the problem here so he said he says not only do we not have the originals we don't even have the first copies of the originals we don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. You know, so re really playing on this fact that we, 
we don't have the originals um we just have copies and 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 they are sort of far removed from from when the original sort of autographs as they're called um were first written and going back to what we sort of said at the start this can seem a really big problem can't it for for christians so you know christianity is based on the life and teaching of jesus and the claims of his what happened at his death and then on the third day his resurrection and so if we you know if we all we've got to base all that on the text of the new testament is actually you know how, how can we know that's reliable then that's quite a serious charge then, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, you know, if, if you're somebody who perhaps has, has never really given this much thought before and, and you come across those kinds of challenges, you might not be sure how you can how you can adequately address them. It, it can cause Christians to doubt their own faith and trust in what they're actually reading. Mm. Okay, so let's try and sort of address this problem. We've acknowledged that it, you know, it could be a challenge, it could be a problem, and we've got to just think through it and, and take sort of, textual criticism seriously and so on so what can we do we've got you know our, our bibles printed and bound or you know electronically or whatever what can we do to compare that with anything you know how, how can how on earth can we start making the assessment as to whether or not it's reliable the way we do that is actually think about how the bible has come to us today as, as you said we most of us if we are bible readers will will have um, at the very least, an electronic Bible these days on, you know, in the palm of our hand or, you know, a nice sort of leather bound Bible with various various helps that, 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 that aid us in our reading, like bookmarks and centre margins and references and maps in the back and all of that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy when we've got that in front of us to forget that the Bible didn't just sort of float down from heaven in that form um, or wasn't sort oh, of right. dug, or wasn't dug up you know out of a shiny metal box in a perfectly preserved um, mm. nicely bound book it's it has a messy history of transmission and and the way we piece t- that together is by looking back at, at the manuscripts that have come down to us to the present day so you know we've, we've mentioned already papyrus which which the the original autographs would have been written on mm-hmm. the, the likes of paul and, and and the gospel writers actually sat writing these down or, or perhaps in some cases dictating them to a scribe who's writing them after that then the message is then transmitted onwards put yourself in the shoes of a first century christian you know, in a, in a church somewhere in the Mediterranean, and hey, you've received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Great excitement! And you all gather together in your church to hear that letter being read. Perhaps just sort of hand it hand it round, but but more typically, it would have been read to you. You know, it's a congregational mm-hmm. gathering. And then after you've heard that, you, you might think, oh, it would be really useful for the church, you know, twenty miles in the next province to to hear this as well. But, and we know we've got someone in our church who's, you know, perhaps a businessman who's you know, going going on the road selling his wares, and he's going that way next week. Why don't we make a copy of it and send that mm. with him, and he can take it to that church, and then so on and so forth. You know, so you, you can yeah. see how how from that kind of nucleus that the message would would spread because people would want to get these letters out. So they made copies of them, uh, you know, I, I, either on papyrus at that early stage, but then but then sort of converting over to, to, to manuscripts and codexes, which is the old, yeah, yeah. The old word for a book. So, so the, way, the way we sort of piece together how we've got to where we've got today is by looking at those manuscripts. And w- when you do that, you know, you, you realise what, what an incredible resource we have.
aware that there's there's lots of biblical manuscripts. How old are they as well? I mean, it's 2,000 years we're talking about, that give or take, aren't we, from when these New Testament documents were first written. So that's still a long time, and we could have really ancient manuscripts, but still be really far removed as well. Let's perhaps just back up and just think about, about the volume and the number of manuscripts that we have in the first instance, because I think that's probably the starting point. Okay. Because we, we, we might ask the same question of, you know, any any of the ancient classical authors whose works we still have extant today, well, what's what's the manuscript evidence for them? Uh, we've got um, works by um, Herodotus, for example, who who is best known as the biographer of Alexander the Great, um, and we've got 106 of of, of his works in in you know in existence today, and then we can okay. look, for example, at um, at Caesar, who who wrote, wrote monumental works on. Uh, you know his conquest of Gaul and the Roman mm. civil wars and various other bits and pieces as well. Uh, how many have we got for him? We've got we've got two hundred and fifty one. Okay, and then we've and we've got Livy, the Roman historian, who wrote a, a, a monumental work on the history of Rome, and we've got four hundred and seventy three of his works. You know, so th- these are the manuscripts we've got to work with, and that sounds quite good. You know, four hundred and seventy three sounds like sounds like quite a lot. Yeah, it does. However, the, we, we we then turn to the New Testament and we ask the same question: what what manuscript evidence have we got for the writings of the New Testament? And when we add all that together, we've got almost six thousand Greek New Testament manuscripts. Oh wow! Now I should say here: the, these are not manuscripts with the entire New Testament in each one. Um, some of them are only very fragmentary. Um, we do have manuscripts with the entire Greek New Testament in them, um, but the vast majority of them are you know, pieces from, from here and there, basically what survived and, and come down to us today. That's a huge difference, though, isn't it? You know, Jumping up from something like 400 to 6,000. Or... It, it, it does really dwarf you know, all of those other um, ancient authors just, just in, in, in the sheer volume mm of evidence we've got today you know it's one one of the most um the most well-known new testament textual critics called bruce metzger who writes in in his book you know the 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 textual critic of today is actually embarrassed by the wealth of evidence you've you've got your your textual critic who's studying the works of you know plato or herodotus or whoever else that might have a few hundred (laughs) you know the textual critic of the New Testament is there, you know, surrounded by stacks of paper, you know, four feet high. You know, that that's the kind of evidence they've got to work with. But of course, that brings another challenge, which is actually get, getting through the whole lot anyway. But we'll, we'll come on to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's an awful lot. And, and a lot of them, you know, some of them do go back quite early, don't they? And, and this is, you know, we, we're not going to get into technicalities of how they date them based on handwriting and all sorts. But, you know, some some are pretty early that there's um, P52, I think, is meant to be the very, very earliest one we've got, a small little fragment of the Gospel of John. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I guess just, just to hold that thought and just back up again and, and, and again, just ask the comparison question. Well, how long is how long is the time gap? Okay, yeah. With those ancient authors between when their works were first written, and and the earliest surviving copies we've got. And again, you, you can present this in a nice graph. Um, take Caesar again. We ask, okay, what what's you know what's the time gap between when he was writing and our oldest surviving copy? And the time gap there is eight hundred and fifty years. Okay, a, a, a huge gap of of some eight or nine centuries between when Caesar originally penned those words and, and our earliest surviving copy of them. It gets a little bit better, you know, so if we take, for example, let's take a name again, uh, Livy, 
we mentioned him, him earlier. Um, the time gap there comes down to 300 years. And then, you, you know, you come down to, for example, Plato, the Greek philosopher there. You've got 200 years between between when he was writing and our earliest copy. But again, you, you then compare that to the New Testament. As you said, we've got some manuscripts like like P52, for example. Mm. What you find when you look at manuscripts is then they're not very imaginatively named. They're generally just given a number. <laughs> but uh, you can understand why, because you've got almost 6,000 of them. <laughs> you can't, th- can't think of yeah. a name for all of them, right? But yeah, P52 is, is universally acknowledged as the earliest surviving scrap of New Testament that we have today. So that, that, that is currently housed in the John Rylands Library here in Manchester. Mm. And you, you, can, you can go and see that if you wish, um, if you ask them nicely to get it out of its, uh, its, its nice perspex box, perspex box view. But yeah, we've, we've got manuscripts like that. Um, and P52, for example, is, is as you said, a, a scrap of the Gospel of John. It's only about two or three verses, so it's by no means a big chunk of it. But considering that the Gospel of John is thought to have been written around 90 to 100 AD, mm-hmm. and, and P52 is dated to about 125 to 175 AD, you know, you've, you've got there a manuscript that potentially is dated to within you know, 50 to 100 years of when it was first written, yeah. of when John first wrote those words, which is absolutely astonishing when you think of it. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, that's just one little example isn't it and there's there's others you know from that point on other little scraps and then the, you get bigger manuscripts as well and and then you get things like the early church fathers in their documents that they wrote they they quote the new testament as well so yeah you've you've, you've not just got your, the manuscripts themselves you've you've got quotations of, of the church fathers as you said who are quoting from them extensively you've also got translations as well into into other languages of course yeah so you know, as 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 the writing started to circulate around the Mediterranean, then churches in different places would have needed to read them in 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 a language other than Greek. So you've got translations into languages like Gothic, you know, Armenian, um, and again, you know, textual critics, people who, who look into this kind of stuff and examine the manuscripts, can use those. Um, lines of evidence as well to compare against. So there really is a huge amount to go out here. Okay, so so that's a good start, really. I think to you know starting to think actually there is a there is a lot of basis here to, to the New Testament. But you know if you if you go along, um, anyone can hop along to like the Wikipedia page for textual variants in the New Testament. It it starts like listing out um, you know estimates. So for example, Barham, and we've talked about him. At one point, estimated there's between two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand variants in the manuscript. So now it's, so we're talking about the the changes now. Yeah, but uh, you know, other people have estimated there's there's changes in between all these manuscripts as high as like seven hundred and fifty thousand. So, so having all these manuscripts, that's that's really great. But if we've got all these thousands of changes, how can we rely on them? I suppose to some extent, this is a, a bit of a double-edged sword. Yes, we have all of this fantastic textual evidence, but you can take any two manuscripts from that, um, you know, that that uh, repository of nearly six thousand and compare them. And no two will match exactly word for word. And so, yeah, you, you've introduced the term variant there, which I, I guess is a, a technical term in this field. So a, a, a variant simply means any place in the manuscript evidence where where there is a variation. You know, it, it could be simply word order. It could be you know, a variation just in spelling. It could be verses that are omitted or, or included in one manuscript, which may not be 
um, in another. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, with with such a a wide basis from which to start, you would expect that. So to a certain extent, when when we hear those giant figures being tossed around, and you know, someone says, "Well, you've got four hundred thousand variants in the, in the Greek New Testament. How do you deal with that?" Yeah, again, that is a challenge. And it, it's a big, scary number and one which, you know, to the uninitiated or, or, or a person who's not perhaps as familiar with this, that might, might cause them some worry. But again, there are ways which this problem can be approached. I, I guess the first thing to state is that a huge amount of that variation is is fairly insignificant. Okay. So by, by that, we mean variants which don't really have any impact on the message itself. So things like spelling and... Yeah, so I so I, th- I think about um, you know when when I'm writing documents on 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 my MacBook here, I might have Microsoft Word open, and you know if I write the word color and spell it in a certain way, it will underline it with a wavy red line because it wants me to use the the American spelling and leave a, a U out. Oh, Americans. Um, or, or words like labor, you know that that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it does. It tries to do the same with that one. If I was to leave it in and and you know, send that to an American audience, they would still be able to understand it. It doesn't change the message, but it, it is a variant. Um, so a great many of the variants that we find within the, the Greek New Testament and, you know, in that textual tradition are, are of that variety. So, so really quite inconsequential. Others might be variation in word order, or again, you've got, you've got roughly the same words in there. They're just in a slightly different order. Um, but again, it's not affecting the overall sense of of the message itself. So there's there's loads that are sort of inconsequential. I mean, there's still going to be quite a few or lots of variants that alter the meaning. Is it is it fair to say that because there's so many changes, it is actually possible to trace where changes have come about? You know, is is it the the fact that there are these many changes that really helps us or helps the textual critics to actually work out and trace and and show where the changes have come about and therefore be a bit more certain about what was original. I think this is a, a, a reasonable place where we can actually just, just take a step back and just talk about what we mean by textual criticism okay, yeah. and, and what a textual critic is, because that's that's a term that we've used a couple of times so far in this conversation. So I, I guess just to just to explain, first of all, that when, when we hear the word criticism, we might think that's a negative thing. You might think that these are people engaged in somehow criticising the New Testament and, and, and the Word of God. Um, that's not what it means in this context. It simply means, you know, that these are people who exercise a judgment and make a critical decision about a text. And it's, it's worth just pointing out as well that this doesn't just apply to the Bible text. Textual criticism is something that happens with other um, ancient or, or, or older texts as well. So, for example, if you're studying the works of Shakespeare, you might come across a a critical edition of, of the works of Shakespeare. It even happens in music as well. You can have critical editions, you know, for example, Beethoven symphonies. Um, so all, all it means is that you've got somebody who has taken 
the extant evidence that we have for, for that work and, and applied some thought to it and applied some rules and actually said, OK, we've, we've got all of this evidence. It differs in places. But what, what can we be pretty sure about best reflects the original um, the original writing that, 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 that was that was um, that was committed to paper or, or parchment or manuscript or whatever it might be. So that that's what New Testament textual critics do and Old Testament ones as well. In fact, you know, many, many of these principles are the same there. Yeah, yeah. Just, um, with the Old Testament, they've got a lot less to go on. So so what what textual critics do is they, they gather all of that evidence together and they apply some rules to it, you know, and they and they try to take a balanced view of which reading of any particular manuscript best represents what what came before. You know, the, the the way they don't do that is by simply spreading all the manuscripts out on the table and saying, well, I have a bit of that one and a bit of that one, and I, I like I like the way this this uh, this scribe wrote it here. We'll take that, bit, <laughs> you know, to kind of match their own their, their own doctrinal inclinations. That that's certainly not what they do. They apply some. Um, uh, established and standardized rules to all of this stuff mm. and it's, it's interesting it's, it's sort of part science and part art yeah by doing that and looking at the changes where they've come about where the manuscript was found you know what sort of age of writing it was and you can start to see the themes and trace the the patterns and and work out how variants have arisen and just again to, to take an example again imagine that in your family uh, you have a, a recipe for cookies and, and you know that this recipe has been handed down um, over 100 years. So it was handed back down by, by your grandma and then she got it from her great grandma and she got it from her great great grandma and, and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you've got this very old recipe. And in fact, you know, your, your cousins, their recipe differs slightly from yours, e even though it's been handed down. Oh, I see. From from the same original source, you know. So you you in in your family, your recipe might say that the the the, the cookies contain um, chocolate chips, but you know, um, you know c cousin John's recipe, and he's based in a you know a different <laughs> country, perhaps his might say, well, no, it, it actually contains raisins, you know. And okay. and one recipe says um, brown sugar, and another says uh, demerara sugar, and and you can easily see how some of those mistakes may have been may have been passed on. You know, it, it may have been someone who was copying the recipe out and it, it originally said D, you know, it just had the letter D sugar. And someone may, may have mistaken that for a B, which then sort of turned it into brown sugar. You know, I, all, all of these illustrations break down eventually. Yeah. But that sort of illustrates how, how these, these difficulties and these variations can happen. So what you might do is you might, OK, you might say, OK, let, let's let's gather all of those uh, recipes in and just compare them and you can see oh in actual fact i can see that the um the recipes that all say brown sugar are from australia uh, and the ones that all say we should use chocolate chips are all from uh, you know 1990 and all centered in this particular location so that that's the kind of theory that textual critics will apply there's, there's a lot more to it of course but those kinds of questions they will ask where, where is the manuscript from you know how old is it is, is, it, is it from a particular location? Is, is it from a particular um, group of scribes or you know, a particular sect of Christianity that we know had proclivities or inclinations toward this or that you know, way of doing things? There's, there's all sorts of questions and, and, um, and bits of information that they can bring to bear on this. But the result is that they end up with a New Testament where, and this is the important point to make, 
yeah to take take your cookie recipe yes there might be variations in the ingredients and the quantities of them and the spelling of them but at the end you've still got a cookie right you're, you're, st- you're still all making a cookie with that recipe mm. and i guess you could say that about the new testament as well um yes there are variations between them there are variations in translations as well uh, which is kind mm-hmm. of the, you know the, the downward stream of this activity but in the end yeah yeah you, you, the message is the same you're reading about the same jesus and it's the same gospel in there yeah because because all these variations the textual critics can can trace them as much as they can and and end up with something that is as reliable as it as it can be and but actually if they got some things a little bit wrong and and you know like you said translations make dis- make different decisions actually don't they in in some cases some verses are included some verses aren't but at the end of the day th- those question marks those those kind of uncertain details they're quite small compared to the actual certainty of 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 a lot of the conclusions of still got a cookie yeah you still got a cookie you know if if we think that the the gospel message itself is centered in in the person of Jesus Christ who he was where he came from the fact that he died and was raised again and that through that act you know we 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 can have our sins forgiven and a hope of life and be reconciled to god you know that that core message of the gospel does not change um no, no, no matter which well hopefully which translation you're using um and which text this is based on as well whichever manuscript you got there's no doubt that that's what the apostles were preaching this has all been really good what about diving into just a few examples of variants and variations and changes and so on well That is where we will pause this investigation of the New Testament text, its variants and the discipline of textual criticism, which aims to get us as close to the original words that were written. In the next episode, as Dan said, he and Phil will continue by delving into specific examples of variants and thinking about how much or how little they should affect our reliance on the New Testament as a witness to Jesus, the Son of God. You've been listening to the Bible Feed podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're always keen to hear what you think or other subjects you'd like us to discuss. So get in touch with us at biblefeed.org or on our Facebook page or at Bible Feed Online on Twitter and be part of the journey. <laughs>